Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews and discussions with spiritually awakening people. I've done hundreds of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and check out the past interviews menu. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. And so if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the site. And if you don't like PayPal, there's a donate button or link that you can check out other alternatives through. My guest today is John Butler. John is a delightful man who lives in the UK. He came to my attention and perhaps that of many others when he did an interview on Conscious TV uh, some while back. He's become something of a, a rock star, and I'm sure he'll find that phrase embarrassing. But his Conscious TV interview has like over 800,000 views, which is quite remarkable. Far more views than I've gotten than any um, interview before, and probably more than any, than, than any Conscious TV has gotten. So I think people are charmed by his, his wisdom and his authenticity and um, his um, gentle demeanor and various other qualities, which you'll see as we proceed through this interview. So welcome, John. Thank you. Good to see you. I'll read a brief little bio here just to get us started, but then we'll be fleshing this out a lot during the course of the interview. Um, this is written in the first person by John. Childhood accustomed me to nature, solitude, a sense of God, which needed no explaining. Stillness, beauty, depth of love called my heart back home where it belonged. But life grew out into the world, became possessed and lost the way. After a few unwilling years in business, I went to South America to, quote, make, make the world a better place, end quote. It wasn't so easy. Alone on a mountainside one day, an inner voice said, to make whole, be whole. I realized that before being able to help others, I first had to work on myself. Once back in England, I looked for and found a source of meditation, which opened up a whole new way of seeing. How can I best help the world I love? This question led me through organic farming, much travel, and many adventures to ever deeper understanding of the work of prayer. I wouldn't call myself a mystic, though some say I am. I'm not sure what it means. Besides, not this, not that. Neither, in a conventional sense, am I very religious. Mystic conveys to me a wise unknowing of morning mist, with only the promise of a day to come. It's not an intellectual approach defined by man, but trusting, waiting, quietly still before each blade of grass, each little bird, reminding us, reminding us of higher, nobler government than ours. So you can tell by what I just read that John is a beautiful writer, among other things, and he's written quite a bit, and I've read as much as I can in the past week, wishing I could have I had time to read more. Um, but those of you who enjoy this interview might enjoy reading his books. He's also written a lot of poetry. I also just want to add, before we get started, that we're recording this in um, October 13, 2018, and towards the end of this month, John's going to be conducting a, a meditation retreat where he lives in the UK. So if you're in the UK, if you feel like traveling there, perhaps you could attend it. Is that retreat full, John, or is it possible for people to still sign up for it? Well, we've never done a, a formal thing like this before, but people can just come. I, I'm there in the church every day, and people just come when they like. There's nothing, there's nothing regulated about it. 
There's only a, a... So people do that anyway, you're it saying? It's just a local uh, guest house that, that came up with the idea, and uh, they've only got a few beds, so uh, it's just a small number are, are included in that. But the, the church is a big church. Plenty of people can come. But, but uh, you'll have to find your own accommodation. Okay, so pe- people could come anytime. They don't just have to come towards the end of October 2018. No, no, they no. can just come. And- no, no, I mean, the, I, I go and meditate in our, our local parish church every morning and evening, and uh, it's a public place. People can come and join me if they like. Nice. We could jump right into your history of meditation, but maybe we should backtrack a little bit before that and um, talk about the influences and realizations you had when you were younger that led you to the point where you were even interested in meditating. Like you mentioned that in in childhood you were accustomed to nature and solitude, a sense of God and so on. So, you know, when do you first recall having any inklings of interest in God or spirituality or however, whatever word we want to use? Well, I suppose it was, I didn't use those words then. I just knew that I loved wide open spaces and I loved quietness. I wasn't too keen on talking and crowds. I went around the world when I was 20. I I, I wanted to see what the world was like then before men messed it up. I think I always had an an instinct. I'm afraid they already had by that time. (laughs) Not so much as now, but um, I think I always had a, a strong instinct of the natural compared to the artificial. It was the time when artificial chemicals were beginning to be used on farming. So that word was quite widely used then. Artificiality. Um, And also being a countryman born and bred, another common expression was townee, which described (laughs) those not fortunate enough to be born in the country. And somehow uh, that also was uh, was equated in uh, my typical countryman's mind with with a sort of unnatural approach to things. Um, And of course machinery, motor cars were then replacing horses. Unnatural, weren't they? You see, I'm well grounded in what you might call old-fashioned ways of life. So, I don't think I ever, I don't think I used words like spiritual, oh, for quite a long time. But I was sent to boarding school at the age of seven, and for ten years I, I had compulsory chapel twice, two or three times every day. In fact, always before meals, so even more often during the day. We were, we were brought to uh, to a recognition of uh, of God and the, the Church. It was the Church of England, of course. So I'm very well versed in all the traditional prayers and hymns and the Bible. I know large extracts of it by heart, as I was taught. And I always felt comfortable, familiar with those uh, those old things. They've all been changed now. They've all been modernised and translated. But uh, but men of my age tend to hold to the old the old words. 
spirit somehow or spirituality. I don't think I ever heard of that term until, oh, probably I must have been in my early 20s, I suppose, when I first thought of using that word, what it meant. I, I, I suppose I just turned naturally to to nature where things seemed comprehensible as my means of understanding life. I suppose that was my natural meditation before I ever thought of using the word or ever heard of anything called meditation. Just to be quiet in nature. It, it just was, it was second nature to me. It always has been. When you, when you were a schoolboy and being required to attend chapel three times a day and all and read and memorize much of the Bible. Did you, did the Bible really speak to you? Did you feel like you really understood what it was saying or was it more like a chore, you know, an obligation? Well, it's a lifetime's uh, exercise to understand what it's saying. <laughs> I'm still learning. Um, but what I loved about it were the many references to animals and nature with which I felt at home. I was thrown into this very alien world of other little boys. Being born two years before the outbreak of war, we lived in a, in a deep countryside. I hardly knew what another little boy was until I went to school. And there I found myself suddenly thrust into this world of competition and sport and motor cars and things for which I had no interest. But, but that daily, twice daily opportunity to hide my head in my hands like that and say, God bless Mummy and Daddy and Sammy, our dog, that was my connection back to what I loved and was familiar with. And so many of the old hymns have references to fox has its rest and the bird has its nest in the shade of the cedar tree. But thy couch was the sword, O those thou son of God. All these things I loved, not so much because I understood anything about God, but because they used words that were familiar to me about trees and animals and the earth. To a countryman, the Bible is full of these natural pictures of nature because that's really where, where certainly the old prophets drew their inspiration from, the natural world. And Jesus' teaching is full of references to nature, to the wind, the water, to the flowers. That, that, but that was my connection with religion as a boy. I remember reading a passage in one of your books, or perhaps it was in one of your recordings where you you spoke about your current appreciation of nature and how everything is kind of a wonder. And I mean, you can see a bug crawling on the sidewalk and just marvel at the divine intelligence that could give rise to such a, a beautiful creation. Well, nature's never failed me. I was lucky enough and I worked as a farmer for most of my active life. So... So the open fields and the animals are our home. And as I began to discover people who talked about spirituality and opened my first spiritual books 
and particularly when I listen to people talking about these things, I always somehow measured it against the experience of coming back to my farm. And if, if, if it resonated with what was taught me by nature around me, then I could take it. And what didn't do that, then it didn't somehow ring true for me. I can't overestimate the value and how much I attribute value to that natural connection. For spirituality is actually natural and it is being natural. And whatever it picks up in its passage through the human mind that is not equitable with nature, it is an infallible standard that you can trust. Human cleverness is always, it's inclined to steal people away. Nature brings you back to earth. There's something very profound about that, to my mind, because I've heard you speak of the, the parable of the, the lost son who goes out and squanders all his fortune and then eventually comes back it's, it's almost like all of humanity are those lost sons for the most part. We've sort of all strayed away from, from God. Go ahead and elaborate on that. That might be a trigger for you. From nature. Well, we've strayed away from nature. We've become unnatural, haven't we? And uh, that's it. In this day and age when, you know, God is... Is a difficult word to use because for so many people it's a bit of a switch off and then you're immediately into, well, what do you mean by God? That's why I always feel safest uh, um, keeping my feet on the ground and referring to the wind and the rain and the grass, which at least is common human experience. And as you say, people, there's all this controversy about what God may be and, you know, whether or not you believe in him and so on, but... God is not a concept. Everything is a concept just for the sake of talking about it. We form concepts, but it refers, the word refers to something real, presumably. And so what is that something? And I think you're pointing to it when you talk about nature. And it's most evident there. I mean, you can look at the the thing, the, the wind and the trees and, the, and everything else, and you can see the some sort of intelligence conducting all those processes that is far more artful than, than any human can fabricate. Well, that's, that's one way of approaching it. I told you I was, I was um, accustomed to silence since childhood. My early books on spirituality well, I hardly remember what they were, really. I don't think I probably understood very much about them at all. But I started to meditate when I was 26. And fairly soon, and I used to attend uh, what were called weekly groups then. And fairly soon they began to talk about stillness and silence. Well, uh, 
I thought almost to my surprise, well, that's obvious, isn't it? It was obvious. It's always been obvious for me. And particularly alone in the fields, you could hardly not be aware of it. So why was that suddenly equated with with such a, a spiritual practice? It couldn't be more simple. Ah, and gradually I began to figure things out. That this is what they've been talking about all the time. Where does stillness end and God begin? What do we mean by all these highfalutin words anyway? We talk about them as though they were items in the supermarket. And most people don't know what they're talking about, really. We're just swapping ideas and, as you say, concepts. Ah, come back, come back. Come back to just being, stop talking. That's the great, that's the great key. <laughs> stop talking. Just come back to listen. Listen to the skylarks and the wind blowing. And you're right there in that peace that passes understanding. And so much of this mystery, it becomes very simple. It's not a thinking process at all. It's not a reasoning. The world's wonderful, therefore there must be an intellect behind it. Now, I'm also guarded of all that sort of approach. It's, very, it's so simple and practical. It's not a, a thinking approach. It's a realization. A practical realization. That here now, we are living... Well, in those days, of course, I thought it was there in the fields. Now I'm more accustomed to finding it where I am, which is always here and now. So in other words, you could now be living in the heart of London if you had to for some reason, but that silence, that presence would be just as palpable there as it is out in the countryside. Yes, of course. Yes, exactly. When you get accustomed to it, it's, it's, uh, of course, we do forget. This is our human condition, isn't it? We get, we get, uh, we forget and we get lost in thought. But, uh, but practice, good practice, good spiritual practice is always bringing us back to recognize what is already here from which we have simply wandered away, like that prodigal son. Some people criticize spiritual practice because of what you just said. They said they say it's already here. Why do you need to do anything to get that which is already here? Well, only because we're unnatural artificial creatures. And so meditation can sort of restore our naturalness, you're saying. It can restore our connection. Mm-hmm. With naturalness. Good point. Another thing that people sometimes say to me, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that you've been meditating over 50 years. Haven't you gotten it by now? I mean, you know, why are you still seeking? Why don't, you know, why kind of keep (laughs) beating a dead horse, so to speak? I mean, (laughs) do you ever get that one? It sounds laughable. Haven't you gotten it by now? (laughs) (laughs) Whatever does one mean? Where do you think we're going? (laughs) Whatever are you expecting to find? What is it? (laughs) Look, we're 
this stillness, we, let's figure it out just sitting here, because it's always sim sim much simpler. You and I sitting here, you in America, I'm here in England. And if we just listen, just listen. Stop talking for a moment. One may be aware of stillness. Just simple stillness, in which my voice sounds, my eyes blink. There's a sort of slight hum coming from the computer or something. But the stillness is like, in, like, a silent, like an invisible background to that. Now, where does that stillness end? It has no end, does it? Because it's like a, a, a gateway to the infinite. And the, one of the few things we can safely say about God is that it is infinite. Now, infinite has no end, does it? So where does exploration end? The adventure has no end. It goes from better to better. <laughs> Ever more wonderful. I know that in mathematics they say that, well, you can take infinity and then you can add something to it. Take infinity and add 10. And then you have... In a sense, you've you've created a, a greater infinity, which is kind of a an absurdity or a contradiction in terms. But mathematic mathematicians talk that way. So, in in case of someone like yourself, you know, you've been deeply, you know, steeped in stillness stillness for a, a long time, but you still meditate quite a few hours a day. And so, in your personal experience, do you find that somehow stillness, even though it's always there? is becoming enriched or deepened or something through your continued practice? Stillness itself doesn't become enriched. <clears throat> it is already infinite. What you can do, and this has also has no end. You know, there's a lovely saying, two things have no limit. The foolishness of man and the mercy of God. Now, so long as I'm living in a body that's going to die, a mortal body with aches and pains, then I am in a corrupted condition. Now infinite, this stillness, which is so immediate and present, it doesn't die, does it? You and I, you know, generations can die, all the bombs in the world can go off and it doesn't change it. It is indestructible. Whereas this mortal figure you see sitting on, on this screen is only too destructible. Quite soon now I shall die. And what's that? I go to the ground. I'm food for worms, aren't I? This is the, uh, the fate of man. Mortality. Now, this stillness, let's, let's, because stillness is very, it's a sort of approachable word, isn't it? We can use stillness as a sort of, as a sort of, um, Something that we can comprehend, whereas infinite is a bit sort of out of reach, really. But this stillness, if you think of it like a great umbrella, really, a sort of invisible background umbrella that contains the whole world, everything, all the numbers anyone's ever dreamed of, 
everything, all the millions and billions of subdivisions that make up what we call creation. It's all included. You can only add to it what is excluded. So the question is really meaningless, isn't it? How can you add 10 to absolute beauty, for example, or freedom, or love? And so what are you adding then by your spiritual practice? Ah, you don't add anything. What you do is get yourself out of the way. You remove the impediments. That's the that's what spiritual practice does. Now, of course, to begin with, we don't like to think that John Butler is an impediment. Now, then you go into the subject a bit more and you'll see that my mind is constantly throwing up distractions, um, appetites and things. It's a very fickle uh, um, companion. And it is these, it is this unruly um, uh, mind of ours that really gets in the way all the time. And what meditation does is help one to pass through that. Now this is the, this is the, the trick really, this is the technique of spiritual practice. It's, you, you can't improve God. You can't make God's love greater than it is. All we can do is, is try to diminish the folly, the corruptible folly called John, so that I'm not impeding the light. Look at me. If there's a light and I put up my hand, I cast a shadow, don't I? You see, it's as simple as that. My hand is a block to the light, isn't it? Therefore, I project darkness into the world. See, if you open your mouth and look inside, what's inside? It's dark, isn't it? So that's how darkness is created. We, we, we stand, as it were, as a block to absolute to light. And stillness, of course, is equitable with light because it has no weight, does it? Stillness is, 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 well, you could carry on the sequence a bit further. Perhaps I could talk more about this later. But, um, well, maybe I think I'm straying from the point a bit, aren't they? We'll come back to this again and again, that the only problem in the world is me, is this ego. I think that's a fairly wide, well-known term these days, ego, the, the, the I, me or mine, that, that thinks of me as a separate entity, body and mind, something called John with all his thoughts and emotions and all that. When we meditate, you see, we transcend. We, we go beyond, just like a, an aeroplane goes through clouds. We, 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 go be, we go through this overshadowing of these clouds of the mind and access the open sky beyond. Well, 
there are no bodies there. There are no material, mortal bodies up there. And naturally what freedom is. And that is endless. And there it all begins to make sense. You begin to understand what what life actually is. And so has it been your experience that the repeated immersion in that sky-like unboundedness of, of presence has kind of cultured the instrument that we call John so that it can embody or, or better um, live established in that and not get overshadowed as easily by things? <laughs> not get overshadows as easily. Well, that's, that's, that, that puts it well, because, of course, there are no guarantees. But, but uh, although I'm sorry, I'm rather fumbling with my words, but I'll oh, get into my stride too. Um, it's, uh, uh, how I couldn't possibly sit here in front of a screen and say these things unless I, I, I had experience of it and enough experience to give me the confidence to to express this. It's not something I've read, it's nothing anybody's told me. Some of the things I've read may have confirmed it, but it arises out of actual practical experience. And that really is is its validity. So feel free to, anytime I ask a question and you want to go off in a different direction, feel free to do that because there's no script here. We're just kind of Know, playing this as it goes. But as I understand it, you learned meditation at the school, something called the School of Meditation in London, That's right, which yes, is, yes, uh, was yes. established or founded by Swami Shantanand Saraswati, right? Who was um, Shankaracharya of Jyotirmata? It, it wasn't founded by him, but, but, but he, he guided the school. I never met him. The, the principal of the school used to go over to India every, every couple of years or so and have an audience with him, which was then recorded. And these teachings were, were then conveyed to us students over the course of these weekly groups that I used to go to. And, and I count myself very fortunate that I had that that introduction to meditation, I, I think I've been very well taught, and um, I, I know no better. I'll tell you an interesting tidbit, which you may not know. Shantanan was the successor to Brahmananda Saraswati, who was the Shankaracharya of Jyotirmat before him. Maharshi Mahesh Yogi was sort of brother-disciple to Shantanan in that ashram. Shantanan was a cook, and, and Maharshi was some sort of secretary. Then when... Brahmanan Saraswati died, there was some controversy about who the successor would be, but it's a long story, but it, it ended up being Shantanan. Uh, and uh, Marshi was a friend of his and a supporter of his and so on. The interesting thing is that these uh, swamis were what are known as Dandi swamis. Dandi refers to the stick or staff that they carry. But the Dandi swamis practice an effortless japa meditation, using a mantra, effortless technique of meditation, which uh, is what transcendental meditation is and which it sounds like your meditation is, what you've been practicing. So I think what you've been practicing is very akin to what I learned back in the 60s. And uh, 
it would be interesting perhaps for people to understand the mechanics of it. I'll, I could perhaps ask you to explain that because you've talked a lot already in this interview about naturalness and the beauty of the naturalness of, you know, of nature and its naturalness and so on. But I think that you, you kind of stumbled upon, we both did, a technique of meditation which employs naturalness, which kind of uses nature's intelligence as you, rather than individual will or effort to do what it does and which kind of attunes you to that naturalness in in nature's functioning was that's a bit of a word a mouthful but th- does that resonate with <laughs> with your experience <laughs> to some extent rick um, i've already used the analogy of clouds haven't i and uh, and i like to use the uh, analogy of a mantra being rather like an aeroplane, is that uh, the, the, the human problem is, is really that we are lost in thought, in the, what you could call the clouds of the mind, that are always interpreting and creating, as it were, a secondary, um, a secondary existence. Um, based on me and my experience. Now, meditation uses a word, a mantra so itself is a word, which if you focus on this word, it diverts your attention away from thinking. If you attend to something with full attention, you can't at the same time be thinking of something else. That's the simple principle of it. You've got to meditate with full attention. It's no good. If you do it with half attention, you'll sit there thinking and maybe say the mantra a few times, which is maybe better than nothing, but it's much better if you can do it with full attention. And this takes some learning. It's quite difficult to to attend to something for a prolonged period. And this gradually becomes subtler and subtler without you doing anything about it. And gradually you find that somehow... This grip of the discursive mind gives way to a feeling of spaciousness. Um, it comes as peace or spaciousness or stillness or many ways. Many words are all, all fairly analogous words, mean much the same thing. And so you realize there's something beyond our normal thinking mind. This, in a way, rather may rather whet the appetite because it's a nice experience. It really is. It's absolutely. Uh, it can be thrilling. It can be a bit frightening for those that are nervous until you get used to it. It it's, it's it certainly gives an alternative to this this entombment. I like that word you use. This entombment within our own personal uh, thinking process, our own personal mind. Um, and really, it leads on from there, deeper and deeper and deeper into, into that which you find beyond the clouds, beyond the mind. Now, there are two aspects of meditation, what we call the inner aspect, which I've just been describing, which takes place within the mind. And the other called outer uh, practice, which consists of simply giving attention to the here and now. And actually, if we do that, it has much the same effect. If you really, if I really listen to the sound of my voice, then almost 
without doing anything about it, I'm aware that my voice is sounding within stillness, within something which is bigger than my voice. A listening, a reception, a silence, in which not only my voice, but all voices are contained. Now then, now we're getting into big country, aren't we? What's all that about then? It's really allowing our awareness of what's already here. It's really rather like cleaning your eyes so that you see better. It's rather like removing the debris from our eyes that tend to look at everything and then say, I like or don't like it. It's just looking at what's here. And when it happens for the first time, it's often amazing. Good heavens, you just see the tablecloth in front of you and the play of shadows and wires and things. Amazing. Well, this is just the first step. More and more. There's a, there, you know, it's said that true knowledge is not, you can't learn knowledge. It is revealed. The words of Jesus, know what is in thy sight, and all that is hidden will be revealed unto you. Now that is absolutely it. Know what's in our sight. And not only know what's in our sight, but in our hearing too. If we listen with sufficient attention, it, uh, the, the background really to it just expands. The subtlety of the vibration, it has no end. So gradually, and this is a very gradual process. I've been meditating now for, goodness me, nearly 55 years. <laughs> it's a long time. <laughs> and I'm afraid all too many enthusiastic people, they, they think they can, you know, just sit down and go on a retreat or something and, <laughs> and they'll, they'll get it straight away. But I assure you, you do get something fairly soon. But, but the adventure, and it is an adventure, has no end. You can sit down at a piano and bang a few keys and make a sound on day one, but it takes a while to be a, a maestro. Yes, <laughs> it does. And, and you know, of course, it's, people always sort of say, well, what's there? You know, how do you describe it? But you can see that words themselves have, have a limit, have a boundary. And, and that's why it's actually beyond description, because description could only take you as far as time and space and name and form. And all these things are really limitations encompassing what they appear to mean. And again, if I may quote from the, from the Bible, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for those that love him. You see, it's, it's so much more than what we can 
even presume to access with our thoughtful mind. The heart can take us much further when we start functioning from the heart, because the heart brings us into these unlimited aspects that we're all familiar with. We use every day and we don't always realize that, that these things are indescribable. Who's ever been able to describe love or freedom or indeed life? Or anything for that matter. I mean, try describing what a mango tastes like and you know you could you could hear a two-hour lecture on it you could go home and think about it but you're not gonna it's not gonna be like tasting one <laughs> no exactly rick that's absolutely right so so the uh, 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 a word that's often used in spiritual talk is realization it's when something becomes real to you and uh of course, we, we all try in our, in our ways to, to convey this because it's so good one. When you discover something wonderful, we all want to share it, don't we? Well, I often think perhaps the deepest, the deepest meanings in life are often, it seems best shared by silence. Yeah, especially since the deepest meanings lie in the realm of silence and one can only experience that for oneself. It can't be conveyed verbally or conceptually. Something I could say here perhaps is that to some people perhaps concepts of stillness and silence seem empty. What's there, they say? Like that aeroplane going beyond the clouds. Well, what's there? Nothing's there, is it? No thing. And yet, everything is really... It's really the causal world. Cause, the causal world, is really another way of describing the spiritual world. For... All that we see and hear, the names and forms of creation, are really like precipitations or crystallizations of what's there before the name and form. Like ice. We can pick up ice, we can draw it, we can... It's an object, isn't it? It's a thing. Before ice was water, before water there is there is steam, there is vapour, and then subtler and subtler and subtler um, sorts of vapour. This is how creation arises from the unmanifest into the manifest. And that's why those that explore spirit, it's not, it's far from being empty, it's actually the, the, um, the fullness of everything that appears in limited form in the material world. That's why it's no, there's no difficulty going deeper into spirit because that is the fullness of, of what, what we experience on earth in part. It's the totality. It's the oneness of what we know as separation. It's the undivided wholeness 
of what we know in little bits here and there, which we're always trying to put together. But the wholeness is just found by letting go our identification with the separate part. You don't lose anything, even though you may appear to be just sitting there with your eyes closed in deepest meditation. You're actually in the the fullest possible participation in the creative process because you have gone to that causal source of it all and removed the barrier of separation. That's why, incidentally, prayer, which is really another way of describing what I'm doing, is the greatest power on earth. You look a bit puzzled, I don't think you you get the connection. (laughs) Mm. I was just going to say, um, of course, there are levels of prayer and degrees of prayer, and the the Christian mystics talk about this, and, you know, some are much more discursive or verbal or, you know, asking for specific things and so on, but others are much more akin to what you've been describing as your meditation experience, very deep, nonverbal, you know, um, settling into the unboundedness. Or communion, you see, because because the, the as we separation is really a, a something we manufacture in our own minds. This idea of me, you can see it in a little child. How very early on in life, it 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 starts to, often encouraged by its parents, talks about me and mine, and then divides the world into want and don't want, and I'm John and somebody else is Sally, somebody else has different names forms. This is what we call growing up. Well, actually, we're really growing into imprisonment, into this, uh, you can see really life is a, is an imprisonment where we, where we live, uh, sentenced to hard labor, under sentence of death. That's really what life is, isn't it? What we call life, but of course it isn't life, really. It, it, it's a shadow. This whole world is really a, a shadow of divine origin. And but 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 we live in it because we know no better. We try to figure out figure out one bit of dark one shadow with another. And, but those of us that are lucky enough to to somehow get drawn into a meditative process, which enables one to sort of let go this fixation on separation and taste the source. We discover a a completion because everything is contained in its pure existence. And in pure existence, there is no corruption, there is no death, there's no killing and eating, there's none of this incessant chasing after insatiable desires because one and it is one is complete one is complete we find completion by letting go of incompletion and incompletion is is me Why do people, why are people interested to listen to a program like this? Because they feel in some way that we're incomplete. You want to think, you think, so, listen, somebody else might 
help to fill up some blocks in your understanding maybe. I know it's easy to talk. I, I hope something of the magnitude of what I'm trying to express comes through. I often feel that I, I fumble with words and and I hope even if you will forgive my words, you'll, you'll pick up that the, this, this unchanging stillness that lies behind the words. Well, you know, for, for thousands of years, people have been trying to put into words the things that you're saying today. And uh, I think you're doing a pretty good job of it. <laughs> no one has ever been able to completely convey what they're trying to put into words. As we were saying about the mango, you can talk all day about one and still not going to be like tasting one. But, um, you know, words are how we communicate. And and I think that the value of words is not in the words themselves, but perhaps as as an inspiration to um, get one interested in having the experience themselves, you know, go to a lecture about a mango. That sounds good. I think I'll go home and buy one and try one. And then you have the taste and oh, now I know what he was talking about. Of course. Communication. Well, yes, it usually starts with words, doesn't it? Words are obviously an important part of it. Sound waves soon come up against barriers, don't they? Again, if you, if we come back to the stillness, and even to a little extent merge in this stillness, we realize that this stillness isn't confined to this room, is it? It actually is outside the room too. It contains the whole the whole outside too. Where is the end of it? Isn't the whole world contained in stillness? And what? It knows no barrier, does it? Now, stillness Isn't it the same as silence? Isn't that the same as peace? How many people are longing for peace? And yet it's so immediately present and freely available, isn't it? Peace. Now then let's go on a bit further. Space. Is space any different? And what do we mean by spirit anyway? What is spirit? Is space the same as spirit? Where does one end and the other begin? And isn't spirit, well, they say that God is spirit. So where do any of these things begin or end? Or is this simplicity of just being still actually synonymous with what we may call God? Mm. 
Be still and know that I am God. Well, exactly, yes. This is a, a very well-known quotation, isn't it? And yet it's so practical, isn't it? How can it be more immediately available to us than simply this stillness? This is a theme that you've been touching upon um, throughout the last, well, throughout this whole conversation. I wanted to sort of interject a comment and have you elaborate on it. But before I do that, I just want to remind those who are listening live that if you have a question you'd like to ask John, you can go to the upcoming interviews page on batgap.com and uh, scroll down to the bottom, and there you'll see a form through which you can submit your question. Um, Yeah, I mean, you've been talking about stillness. You've been talking about the fact that the world is kind of tumultuous, and yet stillness is all-pervading. And and so somehow this tumult is happening in the midst of stillness, unbeknownst to most of the people who experience it as tumult. You know, they feel like life is crazy and I'm upset and I'm afraid and I'm, and this and that. And yet, you know, they have this treasure within of, of deep silence and deep stillness, which they could access if they had a means to do so. And you've talked about your meditation practice and, and you talked about um, subtler and subtler meditation, leading one to subtler and subtler levels of, of thinking or of experience. And I'm, I'm reminded of, a, of an example or an, that we could use. And that is that if you and I were to, to shout what we were saying right now at the top of our lungs, people would probably have to turn their speakers down. It would be really obvious and gross. Speaking in this tone of voice, it's they don't have to turn their speakers down. They can still hear us. Or we could just start thinking what we're saying right now, and people wouldn't hear us at all, but we'd still hear ourselves. And so in the, in the same direction, there are yet subtler levels of thought which we ourselves don't experience because they're too subtle. We don't experience a thought until it becomes sufficiently loud in the mind or gross. And so what meditation does is it enables you to sort of step-by-step traverse those subtler levels of thought right back down to the field of silence or stillness from which they emerge. And then, as you say, to just sort of marinate there. <laughs> you didn't say that, but <laughs> to, to rest or reside there and kind of imbibe that stillness into your mind and body, your physiological functioning. And when you, when you come back to the field of activity, you bring it with you to some extent. It, you're, it naturally is able to be retained or, or uh, stabilized in the midst of dynamic activity. You could be doing something very busy in the marketplace and yet it stays with you to some extent, and that grows over the years, which gets us back to this question of why would you want to be meditating for 55 years? Well, it just continues to grow. Well, yes, but may I come back to to very simple, ordinary, natural behavior? Now, I happen to live in a, in a little tourist center in the middle of a beautiful part of England, And many people come here on sunny days in summer. There's a lovely river just down the road. And they just sit by the river there and maybe feed the ducks and uh, and just uh, feel the quietness of the water flowing by, have their fish and chips and let the children play, let the dog run in the park. And at the end of the day, they go back and say, I've had a lovely day. They feel better for it. Now, this is also a district of hills, a great walking country. And many thousands of people come from the cities round about with their hiking boots on and and go for a walk up in the hills. 
And again, without any thought of being spiritual, they just feel better for it. Now, years ago, when everybody had a coal fire in their house, and there were no televisions, people would just sit by the fire at the end of the day and watch the embers. Maybe the, the wife would knit, do her knitting and mending, and that was brought people to peace. They loved it naturally. Probably even didn't think of peace. They just, it was natural. Now life is full of these, of these natural, what you could call meditations. Because meditation is as natural as just that. As natural as going for a walk in the country or taking the dog out. Uh, it doesn't, you know, People have always known the presence of God before in a way they got so clever that they began to doubt it. One of the notable things about real experience is that there is no doubt or question about it. Doubts and questions lie entirely of in this part of the, of the human um, and truth is actually utterly simple. It's the simplest thing. The simplest thing there is. It is simplicity itself. Just like sitting here, hearing these words, and just feeling the peace, the stillness. And all the walls in all the world aren't big enough to interrupt this peace. God is universal. And all the little human, you know, irritations that go on, even the pains of your body are contained within this. So, I, I get a bit alarmed when people start talking too much about, oh, I ought to meditate or something like that. Because life one of the first things you know, the most important is just to stop talking. I really think this is the first step in the spiritual life, is just to stop talking. Just be quiet. And then do what you love. If you ask people what they love doing, it very often brings you to just some simple thing. And that gathers all your interest and your... Because it willingly goes to what you love, to what you find attractive. It's true, John, but, you know, even in your own life, you were doing what you loved. You were living in the country, you were farming, you did some traveling around the world and this and that. And yet you had your problems and your difficulties and uh, your heartbreaks and, and you didn't feel... There was a lack of contentment. Yeah, that's quite yes. right. Yes. And then you learned to meditate, and you did that. And then gradually over the years, contentment grew. And, you know, and you, as you say, everybody in the world takes walks or looks at a fire or does, does, has their peaceful moments, and yet you alluded to wars, um, which are the opposite of peace. So obviously there have been a lot of horrible situations in, in life. And yet all of that, you know, on the foundation of 
stillness and presence, and yet apparently the, those who were perpetrating those things weren't very well tuned into that stillness or presence. And so, you know, perhaps a collective attunement to that would be beneficial for humanity. Well, yes, of course, you're, you're, you're quite right in what you say. Well, nearly all spiritual life, it starts with, with one's own self-interest. What's in it for me? And very soon, as you, as identification with me begins to loosen and expand, it begins to include a wider, wider world. It said that the second step in meditation is with and for other people. And for me, of course, I always thought in terms of animals and, and, and the land. And then there is a further step even beyond that when when uh, we meditate for the love of the work itself. Work is, by the way, what I call spiritual work, which is this work of of, uh, of dealing with, with all this... Um, with the realm of darkness, of course, all, all the works of dark, all the unpleasantness in life, the conflict in life, which if it doesn't come from your own self, comes from all around you. And we have to face this day by day and and deal with it. And indeed, as, as the deeper and stronger we become in our own practice, the more it seems we are given to cope with, the more we somehow embrace all the, all the troubles of the world, and I often think of, again, the words of Jesus, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ, the law of truth. Bear ye one another's burdens. And indeed, this is part of, of, uh, of the work, and is what I tend now to refer to as the work of prayer. Yes, I listen to the news. I, I, I'm well aware of what's going on in the world. I've had, a, I've had a very full experience of life myself. I've seen, not only been through awful depressions and troubles in my own life, but I've uh, seen much of, of the world. I'm no stranger to the works of dark. And... Uh, And somehow all this is is brought brought to peace in uh, well perhaps even better than that because I've already alluded to prayer. Um, of course, like all spiritual work, one's understanding of what is meant by these things it 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 grows and develops through through many many years of of life. Um, it, it, uh, I really think of prayer and meditation as, as the same thing. It, 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 I know one starts from thinking of God as something over there to whom you ask for something. That meditation uh, has a slightly different approach, but they come together, and um, and indeed, what really gives this work meaning, at least at my stage of life, is this worldwide. Um, absorption or realization of of the human agony and its uh, redemption in in the work of uh, through prayer in, in the all perfecting 
love of God in spirit. And then, and again, you know, it's again it's something hard for people to understand. That when you are blessed with times of light, enlightenment, there is no more darkness. There really isn't. Does the sun see shadow? In the light there is no dark. Well, well, everybody says, but, but, what about serial or crimes or something? Well, I showed you before how my hand casts a shadow, doesn't it? And how this shadow is actually the beginning of what creates the works of dark, which is everything that we call wrong in life. Now then, as you learn to, of course you can't cut your hands off, I can't get rid of my body, it's still like that. But as you lose your identification with this, and and as it were more merge into the light, and no longer function as an impediment to this light, then what stops the light? What stops the light flooding the world? In that light, what happens to this appearance of darkness? Is it as real as we think? What happens to death? What happens to depression? You know, it just melts away as mist before the sun. People say, why does God make all this, make a world like this? This is made by you and me. This is what man does with it. This is a projection of man's blindness. The world is what we make it. The real world is perfect. It is heaven. It's the kingdom of God. There's no darkness there at all. There's no separation. One. One complete perfection. That is the destiny of man. That's what we are called to. And that you referred in that reading that you made, first of all, how as a young man of 20, 26, I think, in South America, I seem to receive this message to make whole, be whole. Of course, I didn't understand what it meant then. That almost the whole of my life has been spent in trying to understand, you know, a deeper meaning what that meant. But I think I am nearer understanding it now. That in wholeness, or holiness, everything is whole. That's really how it is. So are you saying that um, as one becomes less and less of an impediment to the light, 
one at the same to to the degree that one does become less an impediment one at the same time becomes kind of a transmitter of the light and helps to infuse it into the darkness or to illuminate the darkness so deeply embedded is this idea that i have to be instrumental in this process of redemption (laughs) no no i'm saying that if there's less of the i then then the the inner light can shine through without impediment not, not that I am shining light on things, but that light within is is passing through. Well, there's that saying in the Bible, seeing through a lens darkly as if the lens is occluded. And then William Blake talked about cleaning the windows of perception. So there are these metaphors about a lens or a glass or something that's dirty and isn't, isn't allowing yes. to pass, all, all light to pass are, through very well. All these are relevant at different stages on the way. But ultimately, one merges in the one. And there's no more two. And that's how it is. There's no more instrumentality about it. One and no more two. And it really cannot be described. Why do I still meditate? I'm not sure that I have a reason, really. Or that you need one, even. (laughs) I'm not even really sure what I do any longer. I go through the process of sitting down. I don't really know what happens. I suppose I'm taken in some way. And yet, there is nothing but nothing in life more meaningful. It it is the completeness of which what we call life is but a shadow. I was just playing off the point you made that you said in your in, in your book, um, realization comes not at our bidding, but as it were from the other mm. side. Yes, absolutely. So it's not like you're doing absolutely. something; it's more like you're s- no. <clears throat> yes, all, all this doing is something that, that, that on this long process. And bear in mind, I've been practicing for fifty-five years, twice a day without fail for fifty-five years. I've been doing it so, so. If anybody starts on this journey, do do uh, be prepared for the long haul. And it's said, said that the, the the most important requirement is determination. And there's another thing I, I sometimes throw in. I think in many ways <laughs> it helps to be a pretty unhappy individual as I was and have been. Because <laughs> if you're really miserable in this life, there's a motive to find, look for something better, turn to something better. I think you're right, and you, and and you might be more likely to notice a contrast when you when you do turn to something better, and 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 that will motivate you. Yes, uh, yes, I, I, I. It's funny looking back now. I can see all my periods of despair and misery actually as as aids on the way, and I, and I, I'm quite sure this life is like a school. Which, which we learn by our mistakes and we never stop learning but uh, keep plodding on my friends uh, don't give up even though 
you seems to be getting you nowhere. Ah, you know, but I, I, when you use words like long haul and determination and plodding on and, and so on, it makes it sound like a, a drudgery or a tedious journey. And I don't think you would characterize it that way. No, I wouldn't, because on this journey of meditation, and this also is quite an important point, I've never, ever in all my years ever experienced anything bad, frightening or sinister. So, it is a light, it is a journey from darkness into light, from confusion into simplicity. And it's, you can't argue with it. It's, even at the very beginning, it's, it's a real experience. It isn't something that, that you can read about in books or be told. It's when you, you know... Just sitting here, I can look at the screen, or I can look, turn and look at the sky through the window. Now, the screen has its, you know, this is like the performance, aren't we? We're doing this in, in this context of a, of, a, of a Skype interview. Now, out there is the sky. And there, in, in contrast, is like a freedom, isn't there? An, a, an infinite dimension. And meditation's like that. You can't argue about it because because when you turn from what is small and limited into what is less limited, you instinctively recognize it. And then, of course, we come back into this world again. But something of that that, uh, other dimension gradually, gradually permeates uh, our existence, our mortal existence. Yeah. Did Shantanan ever use the, um, the analogy of dying a cloth? They, they use this in India sometimes. You take a cloth and dip it in colored... A what? A cloth, like a piece oh, of cloth, fabric. Yes, yes. Take it and dip it into colored dye, yes. and then you bleach it in the sun. Yes. And then you dip it in the dye, and then you bleach it in the sun. And each time it bleaches in the sun, it loses, it retains a bit more of its color until eventually it's color fast, whether it's in the dye or the sun, same color. So it's kind of what you're describing here. Yes, yes, certainly that. And many, many other analogies are, are, are used indeed. Yes, the wave and the ocean, uh, the, I've already said, mist before the sun, the... the um, Well, I was going to ask you about God, presence, silence, stillness. We've used those sorts of words, uh, but obviously most of the religious um, scriptures of the world talk about God a lot, and they also talk about presence and silence. But how, would you equate the two, or is there something? Are we implying something even more profound or, or significant when we use the term God? Well, I suppose you know. <laughs> um, Everybody, well, I won't say everybody, but many people have a very definite concept of God. We're brought up on on a, a, a verbal formulation which we repeat with more or less understanding of what it means. I'm a little bit wary of entering into religious language because of so many people have so many interpretations of it. When I was a young farmer, I was very 
impressed how the fact that my feet would crush the grass under my feet. Now, I loved grass. I've always loved grass. And you've only got to just kneel down and observe grass, especially a, a, an old pasture, which we have many in England, to see the wonder of, of it, the delicacy, the beauty, the order, the unbelievable, uh, miraculous uh, miracle of what of what grass is. I love the phrase the forgiveness of nature growing over all the mess that we make of it. Well I think I there was because you know the phrase the Lamb of God. I've I've kept sheep for many years. I always loved sheep. And as I began to observe my own and understand what happens to sheep, the life of sheep. This phrase, the Lamb of God, um, meant ever more to me, the way that these innocent creatures are sacrificed to provide for man, of course, food for man. Why should it be like that? Why should this lovely grass be trodden down, broken and bruised under my feet? Still more when motor cars or something drive over it without a second thought. And then I began to think of Jesus, the Lamb of God, broken for our sins, sacrificed for our sins. But where does Jesus end and my lambs or the grass begin? Is Jesus just a human embodiment? 2,000 years ago, written about in the Bible? Isn't Jesus, as he himself says, I'm with you always? What do we mean by that? Do we see a man in white clothes walking about? No, we see lambs, don't we, and grass. Well then, aren't the lambs Jesus? Isn't the grass, isn't every blade of grass Jesus? Again, the scripture tells us all in all. Everything is Jesus. Everything is incarnate, is the spirit that we call God, crystallized or incarnate in this world in which we live, and dying being sacrificed, consumed for our sins, which is my projection of darkness. I project darkness because I've turned away from God. I am a sinner. Fortunately, you haven't asked me the question, am I a Christian or something like that, because I feel much safer saying, I am a sinner, because I am. And for 80 years I've done my best to obstruct the light and created the works of darkness. And so for my sin, lambs are killed, the innocent die, and the grass is crushed. 
I'm beginning to sort of get in my stride now, you see. This really became the great motivation for me to practice ever more and more and more. As I began to realize that it was my responsibility how my beloved nature suffered, how I was the cause of that suffering, not because of plastic bags and this sort of stuff, but because of what went on in my silly head. This is the original pollution, which puts all, you know, our outer pollution, which we typically, you know, think of as, as we, if we clear up pollution, it'll be better. But, but dear friends, if only you'd attend to cleaning up the pollution in our own minds, it would be a lot more effective. And, and, and so for this, Christ is crucified literally in every creature on earth, which is incarnate God, God in everything. Then it's now good. I remember how, sort of step by step, perhaps I'm really, it seems so simple and obvious to me now at the end of my long life, but it's been so thrillingly exciting as little by little by little I, I began to realize what it's all about, what they mean when they talk of sin and uh, Christ and redemption. And indeed, you asked me what we mean by God. Well, I wouldn't even venture to confide him within words. <laughs> but God to me is, as I've said to you, is, is, is uh, perhaps the best way I can convey what I understand by it is take this simple stillness and just keep on expanding it. Expanding it beyond all limits to where it has no end. And then think some might ask, based upon what you just said, that, okay, you wanted to diminish the footprint, so to speak, of your life on nature, the damage you might be inadvertently doing through your actions. You forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. You wanted to diminish that. Uh, and some might ask, okay, well, have you stopped eating lambs? And, you know, and there was a passage in your book where you had this pet pig who followed you around everywhere and you eventually had to slaughter him. And, and it took you three years to eat all the pork that you got from that. And that might seem kind of uh, contradictory to some, in some people's minds. How do you reconcile that, that kind of thing as a farmer? <laughs> one can get awfully bogged down in these things, can't one? Um, well, it is a very humbling process to recognize, uh, I'll use this word sin if you don't mind, I know it's rather politically unacceptable now, but it's, it's such a very, it's, a, it's, it, 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 it's very illustrative of our human condition. And because we are all sinners and we cannot not partake in of this, of, of the consequence of sin, we all have to share in the corporate guilt, if you like, of sin and bear the burden of what we have caused and realize that, that it's only through the grace of this spiritual radiation which one may turn towards that, that one can... <laughs> Again, words, words, words. I must be very careful of what I say or I'll say something foolish. 
You know the words at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, not my will but yours be done. We use the expression, God knows, don't we? I don't know. I think one thing meditation has taught me is gradually to trust in myself less and in this, in God more. The less of me, the more of God. Yes, that's a phrase I like to use. The less of me, the more of God. And perhaps there's no quality more suitable to our human condition than that of humility. Or realizing that, that without that spiritual grace, we can do nothing. And that in surrender to that, the, the inadequacy of John to really do anything very much apart from write a few books and fumble about with words in an interview like this, is, is, is surrendering to that which we call almighty and all-merciful. And the deeper one gets into that, the more you realize that that, that that perhaps particularly that second description, all merciful, is absolutely true. I talked, I spoke previously of the foolishness of man and the mercy of God, the wisdom of God that governs all things. Why does he allow wars? Well, you see, it's all a great lesson for us. Um, we learn by our mistakes. God doesn't create any bad. There is no dark in the real world. In the real world is light. It's described in Revelation. It's absolutely correct. There is no light. There is no dark. It's life, full life, as we, as, as we cannot even conceive of with our human concepts. Um, yes, we're all tarred with the same brush. We're all sinners. We all, even, even if you stop eating meat, uh, you, you've got to eat something. Do you think if you eat vegetables, you're killing anything less than... You can't do anything. You can't function every time. You can't breathe without breathing in microbes and killing them. You can't walk without treading on things and killing them. Your very existence is, is, is again, as uh, the Bible says, cursed is the ground for thy sake. When Adam left paradise, which is all of our natural home paradise, and bear in mind there was only one Adam. Man was singular then. Man hadn't divided himself. That is the, 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 the union, that's the true communion. Not communion with something, but union, one. And then you would go into separation and cursed is the ground 
and uh, what is, everyone's talking about it now. We call it a new word called the called conservation or something. But but uh, yeah. but uh, the whole world is infected with this disease of sin, which actually is humanity, is mortality, that which we, which we so esteem as uh, you know as as human is actually a, sh- a shadow of divine origin. It's a sort of inversion of real life. It's literally a disease. That's why it's full of corruption. It is, isn't it? No matter how healthy you try to live, you're going to die. That's, that's the wages of sin, is, is death. Whatever dies isn't real life. And what in this world doesn't die? Because the whole world is infected with man's disease of sin. And that's why to return, to come back, to come back to our senses. In that story of the prodigal son that you, that you quoted, it's a very important phrase. He was feeding the pigs, wasn't he? And he came back to his senses. He's probably, that literally means he opened his eyes, he listened, he saw where he was. And he said, I will rise and go home. And the father came to meet him with open arms, didn't he? Father ran to meet him with open arms. And, you know, in the depths of meditation, far beyond where you and I can do anything, the door is opened from the other side and you get these what might almost be described as love running to meet us with open arms this spiritual love that holds this not only you and me but the whole of creation in those open arms Remember, the less of me, the more of God. So that in truly, in truly surrendered meditation or prayer, long after you've forgotten about your own separate ego, there is actually, you are no longer limited. So it becomes a, it becomes an unlimited process. That's why it's true to say that I am also the first of sinners because I'm the one that turns away in the first place. And I am is also the name of Christ. As I recall, the etymology of the word sin is that it means to miss the mark. Perhaps the attenuation of sin involves sort of, as you've been saying, surrendering to God more and more so that presuming that God, if, if, if God were the com- complete motivator of our actions, they mm. would, they would hit the mark. They would be in, in tune with the will of God. And, you know, to the extent that we're involved, some egotistical volition, then we <laughs> kind of divert that will of God and, and end up mm. missing the mark. 
indeed. <laughs> we grope for words, don't we? <laughs> Such is our human compulsion. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, there's a lot of terminology like that, you know, like like you were quoting Jesus, thy will be done, not not mine. And so there's always this theme of let me get out of the way so that thy will can be done. Yes, I don't know where the process ends. But, it, but here and now, whatever, whatever we make of our human situation, whatever condition it's in, there is this stillness, isn't there? This presence. Just listen to it. It's so immediate, isn't it? Like an invisible hand that we can hold. So I can just put out my hand and hold it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. How true that is, and how many countless Generations have used those lovely words for their funeral service, even though they wouldn't call themselves sophisticated spiritual people by any means. Yes, indeed. I know, I know. It was so widely known, wasn't it? I'm so grateful I was taught these things as a boy. I really grieve for modern children who are under some sort of political correctness are somehow deprived of this great heritage of these lovely words. It's amusing that when you were when you were a young man you contemplated yes. being a, a priest for a while and that the, apparently the authorities <laughs> yeah. told you you yes, weren't that's Christian. That's true. Well, well, I learned, I learned <laughs> meditation. It's kind of ironic. I, I was so thrilled by it. I, 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 uh, I'd been reading Christian devotional books then and, uh, and I thought this is exactly what it's all about. Suddenly it all began to make sense. I went off to the local bishop and wanted to be a priest to share this knowledge. But uh, yes, I've lived with most of my life under this <laughs> this, <laughs> this label, which half of which I'm, I'm half sorry about, half almost, funny way, proud of, not sufficiently Christian. <laughs> uh, the church is a yeah. little bit more open now than it was when I started. Well, you know, I think it would do um, church people good to do them well to study a little astronomy. There, there's something like 40 billion Earth-like planets in our galaxy and an estimated 10 trillion galaxies in the known universe. And I, I, I presume that any inhabited planet has had numerous religions on it, all of, all of them, most of them claiming to be the only one. So if you kind of put that in perspective, it's like, it could well, be a little bit more humble. I do have... Uh... I do have great respect for the for the Christian teaching, as I said to you. It, I think our mistake is that we we keep Christ too small. And uh, I think for me, meditation, as I was describing, realizing that in fact every lamb, every animal that is sacrificed for us is, to my understanding, I know some people will be enraged by what I say, but but uh, for me. That is Christ. Everything is Christ. And in my service to that, I, I well, as we say, thank God, God judges, finally. And, and 
I would just like to come back as we're sort of getting into rather deep water when we speak of this utter simplicity of this stillness that is so near, so without any pretentious names of it being Christ or anything else. It's just this simple, immediate uh, rest. Rest is another good word for it. Rest, silence, stillness, peace. They're all the same. That is, hopefully you're picking up some of it just maybe from hearing my voice, hearing this interview. Oh, I am. I think you have a very soothing, settling effect. In fact, somebody took the audio of the Conscious TV interview you did with Ian McNay and put up a YouTube video that's called something like the most, I think it was like <laughs> the a, best cure for insomnia or something. This ASMR, because I didn't know I did what ASMR is or was. But, but, What's that? <laughs> well, I shan't attempt to explain. I don't either. What is that? But, uh, it's some... some uh, new, new word oh, that people okay. are using for for that sort of soothing voice, but 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 if, if it's not, you know, oh, it can't okay. really. It's not really my voice, but it probably is something to do with my many many years of of surrender to this this real soothing, the real comfort, which is the which is this spiritual presence. Yeah. That again, just from the Bible, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Comforter, doesn't he? And indeed, it is that, the Comforter. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what I was alluding to before when I spoke of transmitting something, because I think it kind of permeates one's makeup after a while, and one can't help but sort of radiate that quality. I still feel safer to call myself a sinner than a conveyor of, of anything better. But uh, if, if some people pick that up, well, glory be to God, not me. To wrap it up, if you were to sort of try to say in a sentence or two what the essential lesson or wisdom is that you have l- learned in this life, that you could impart to or, or bequeath to anyone who cares to pick it up, um, what would that be? Well, you've asked me to put it into words, but I always feel safest, really, when, when I'm silent. But if you press me to put it into words... Perhaps the less of me, the more of God. Good. And we can leave it at that. I don't know if you even want to elaborate on that, because that that kind of says it all, doesn't it? And it's always now. It's always in the here and now. I think this has become quite fashionable now, hasn't it, to talk about Eckhart Tolle's is is very good at, mm. at conveying yeah. this. Eckhart Tolle, it's, yeah, it's the timeless message that God is present, and all that our human, uh, all that we yearn and hunger for, 
is to be found in those words, the less of me, the more of God. It's paradise awaits us. It's real. It's really real. It's not a matter of belief. It's a matter of experience, of real experience. So, dear friends, be encouraged. Tread the pilgrim's way. Face the ups and downs. Takes courage very often. The powers of darkness. I think we could say also that that paradise that awaits us is is really everyone's birthright. It's not anything that is the kind of exclusive privilege of, of a few. It's something that we all universally have access to if we choose to to take advantage of that access. Well, again, Leo, we, 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 we always think in terms of plural, don't we, mm-hmm. um, of, of we, but actually... As we surrender our as we surrender our separate existence, we draw closer to one undivided reality. And you see, when even when just for a moment one gets a taste of this undivided oneness, then what is excluded? What is separate existence? Are all these egos as real as we think? Now there's a question. That we all die? Are we as real as we think? What happens to a nightmare when we wake up in the morning? What happens to it? What happens to darkness when you switch on the light? So where are all these hundreds and thousands of people queuing up to be enlightened? I used to think as a child when I first heard about heaven, well, where does God put all the people? What is a... We talk of the prayer of the saints. Well, are they just repeating our Father which art in heaven over and over again? What does it all mean? That's why (laughs) I struggled for many, many, many years with all these theological concepts. What on earth does it mean? Am I failing that I I, I can't get it? And then I... And it took me many, many years to be as, as sort of confidently acquainted with with unity, with oneness, as I am now. But truly, in oneness, there are no separate, there's no more separate separation left. The whole world of separation, all these millions and billions of people, and never mind people, billions of ants and animals. I mean, we're all in the same cart, as it were. It, it, it simply, it's just, it's just works of dark and it disappears. It's just, it's like a dream. When you wake up, it's no longer like that. There's only one, one perfection, one completion. To make whole, be whole. Do you think I've figured it out at long last what it actually means? <laughs> it's taken me, <laughs> it's taken me well nigh 60 years. <laughs> 
Well, and I think you've made it clear that you didn't figure it out through some clever intellectual process. Mm. You, you, even the word figure it out doesn't do justice to it because it sort of resolved itself as your experience really matured and blossomed. Yes, yes exactly, yes. <laughs> and yet you can't not figure it out as so long as figuring it out is real for you. So I think we we can't avoid this long, slow, painful process of of dealing with our separate existence step by step, unmasking it, and uh, that's why I, I so esteem this blessed practice of meditation, which in a way does it for us, because what we don't know, we just follow this practice, and well, miraculously, it's. It happens. That's really all I've done. I've just plodded on with practice through a long life. Well, as I think they say, what was it? Star Trek, live long and prosper. <laughs> um, I think you've done that. Although prosper, would not necessarily, I don't think um, Leonard Nimoy meant it in the financial sense when he, when he said that in Star Trek. And uh, I think you've done that admirably. And uh, it's really an honor to... Um, Spend some time with you. Thank you very much. May I just say, God bless you all. Thank you, John. So let me just make a couple of quick concluding remarks. I've I've been speaking with John Butler. John lives in, I believe it's called Bakewell, which is in northern UK someplace. And um, if you are planning to go to the UK and would like to visit John, I think you He'd be open to that. You might want to get in touch through his website to make sure he's feeling up to it or he's going to be there or whatever. But you can go and meditate with him in the church or perhaps have some tea and have a chat uh, or something like that. And I think it would be a, a very edifying experience. So thank you, John. Thank you. Thanks to those who've been listening or watching, and um, we'll see you next week. Next interview will be with Bonnie Greenwell, who's been on Buddha at the gas pump before, and um, we'll be discussing some different material than we discussed in the first interview, but Bonnie is quite knowledgeable about kundalini and and, um, various mechanics of physiological transformation that take place uh, during the spiritual journey. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.